But to actually heal a child, you need inventive spaces, creative spaces, and artful spaces that allow the child to still be a child in the midst of all their healthcare. And that costs money. Our spaces are designed differently, um, our technology is different, and it's all costly. Welcome to the Be Epic Podcast, brought to you by the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. I'm your host, Brent Williams. Together, we'll explore the dynamic landscape of business and uncover the strategies, insights, and stories that drive business today. Well, today I have with me Marcy Doderer, uh, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer at Arkansas Children's. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you. Glad to be here, Brent. Well, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. We've known each other for uh, several years. Uh, it's great to reconnect and hear about the wonderful things that you've been doing at Arkansas Children's. We do have a lot going on, that's for sure. You do. And you just celebrated 10 years in the role, right? What's some of the, the highlights? So 10 years this week. I um, moved here in July of 2013. And I don't think I wasn't that I didn't expect to be here for 10 years, but I'm not sure I fully expected 10 years. I certainly didn't know where we would be 10 years from now. Well, what, what are some of the highlights of, of the 10 years as you look back? I'm sure you've kind of reflected. Absolutely. And probably um, one of my proudest accomplishments with Arkansas Children's is that we are now a two-hospital health system. That may not sound exciting to some people, but Arkansas Children's Hospital had been in Little Rock for uh, over 110 years now, and five years ago, we opened Arkansas Children's Northwest in Springdale, a small community children's hospital, really perfectly situated in the Northwest Arkansas region and serving the needs of those children every single day. It has been so successful, we're in growth mode, and we'll soon put shovels in the ground to expand that facility. Well, wonderful. Um well, you know, you sit in an interesting space in Arkansas, being the only system, healthcare system that primarily serves uh, children in a pediatric community. What are some of the unique aspects of serving that particular population? We've always been in the business of child health and child health care. We think about health care as, you know, being able to catch the sick and injured when they come to us for care. But we also want to make sure we're actively engaging with partners across the state to elevate the health of children in Arkansas. We've done this pretty remarkably by trying to get further and further from Little Rock and out and about. So we have um, primary care clinics in Pine Bluff in Southwest Little Rock, an active clinic in Jonesboro, a home visiting system that touches all 75 counties, and of course the two big hospitals, and another clinic in Benton County. So we're trying to be as close to kids as we can our ultimate aim would be to be within 60 miles of every child. And it's not because we wish to own and operate every kind of child health um, business there is, but because child children are really our future. That sounds pretty cliche and maybe a bit trite, but we are experiencing a moment in time where the human race is not replacing itself. Birth rate is declining pretty steadily year over year, and there will not be enough kids to become adults to take care of you and me when we're old. And so our stance is that we really have an obligation to stand up these kids and help them reach their fullest potential. 700,000 kids in Arkansas, we um, we as a health system might only take care of 180, 200,000 of them individually, but I think we can actually um, be instrumental in creating a fabric of services to ensure that kids um, get the health at our can 
achieve the health status they really need. You know, Marcy, I'm sure you're highly aware clearly of population decline because of being focused on pediatric health care. I'm aware of it because of being focused in the higher education, of course, you know, uh, that as children uh, grow and, and graduate high school, that's who's coming to the university. Do you feel like business leaders that you engage with are really aware enough of, of this issue uh, that's out there? From my perspective, it's not top of mind for very many business leaders. They're looking deep in their here and now, and certainly coming out of the pandemic, global business environment has been extraordinarily difficult to lead in and lead within. And I'm not sure people have stopped to think about long-term impact on population trends and their workforce. Every business, I think, across our country is worried about the workforce of today. We've struggled to fill critical positions, unusual things like pediatric ultrasound technologists, but also mainstream things. We can't find staff accountants. You know, so the workforce of today is challenging. It's only going to get worse. And I think if we could elevate this conversation among the business community and the education community, together we could figure out how we're going to take fewer people and make them better prepared to deliver the kind of work we will need 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now. Service industry, retail industry, the medical industry, technology, whatever it might be, every one of those industries We'll have fewer people to work in their spaces. So what can we be thinking of now that actually replaces the need for the human hand in a way that still allows work to be engaging, um, fruitful, inspiring, and attractive to people who will be working? Absolutely. And, th- and I guess as you're, as you're thinking about that in, in your own business or you know, pediatric systems throughout, you know, the world probably that you're engaged in. I'm sure automation, generative AI, those types of technologies are on your mind and how you're going to, I guess, bring those alongside your people to uh, to solve some of those problems. Absolutely. And I can give you an example that we worked on in the last year. It's very healthcare specific, but it was leveraging um, automation in business systems. In healthcare, when you have a government payer as a major source of your revenue stream, which we do at Arkansas Children's, Arkansas Medicaid is our primary payer, you have a series of what we call cost reports. It's a year-end auditing process of assessing what it cost us to deliver care for the Medicaid kids that we took care of, and it's a very um, involved detailed, lengthy way of reporting back to the state what they owe us for the care we delivered and what it really cost us to deliver that care. It's been a very manual system since the beginning of time, it feels like. But between our information systems team and our finance team, they've been able to really almost fully automate how a a federal and a state-level cost report gets populated. That may not sound very exciting to anyone, but what the reality is, our team who works in Costa County, they don't want to be data manipulators, which is what they've been. By completely automating the process, their checks and balances of the cost report is reduced significantly in terms of man hours, allowing them to change their view and really be the data analyst that they are. And I think every kind of 
rote, mundane kind of business function that we could automate to allow the people to be the thinking, creative minds that a human can be. Every business will benefit from that. AI is a little interesting. One, I think it's here to stay and it's actually going to just boom. It's very scary to some because I think people feel it may replace people in their work. But it definitely has a role. And there's, again, there's some rote kind of work that we do that we think AI can be extraordinarily helpful with. If you think of all the documentation that occurs in a healthcare transaction, when you visit your own personal physician, she or he is having to document deeply in a medical record to assess current state and your problem list and what the prediction or prognosis is for the future. There's a lot of ways AI can help with that and make that easier on the provider, giving them opportunity to spend more face time with you. But there's some also, I think, really interesting unintended consequences of that kind of AI. And here's another example that we're kind of wrestling with in healthcare. We can use automation and a form of AI to help our radiologist read routine and simple radiology images. The idea was to free up the radiologist, the human, the medical doctor, to spend their time really focusing on um, the unusual imaging services that are really acute and need immediate attention. MRI and CT, brain scans, tumor scans, heart issues. Well, what they're finding, though, is the human brain works best when it has some lulls in its day. And by removing all of the routine chest x-rays or plain film orthopedic images, we're forcing radiologists to spend their 8, 10, 12-hour day looking at the really intense stuff. And it's overwhelming to a person's brain. It's exhausting. And so we actually need to come back to some a little bit of a middle ground because behavioral scientists and brain scientists also know our brains like a little downtime. Not to be just on a break and not engaging in anything, but to allow the brain to kind of operate a bit on autopilot. So I think there's some unintended consequences of trying to automate everything and forcing people to just the highest function because we may burn them out even faster than we're doing today. How interesting. Uh, that's a very interesting example. You know, and backing up, I, I would say I totally agree with you of the exciting thing I think about the development of technologies like AI, generative AI, is the ability for humans to no longer have to do many of those rogue tasks and use their creative abilities that only a human can do. But I think as 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 leaders and managers, and I heard someone say this actually this week, he used the word harmonizing technology and people. I like that phrase. Yeah, me too. It really it really stuck with me. And and I think that's sort of what you're saying with this example, like how we get technology and people working together in a harmonized way so that both can be best utilized and so that the person can get the most joy out of the work, I think. Yeah, you think about healthcare, particularly in hospital care, when a child is confined to a hospital room days on end. And they're still aware of enough of their surroundings. They really look forward to engaging with people. But there's some rote tasks that we've thought about replacing with robots, delivering a patient's food tray, for example. Pretty simple technology. It's out there. It's being used today. A robot can, you know, the 
thing can be loaded with the patient trays in the kitchen. It knows how to move up and down the hallways and up and down the elevators and can stop outside the room so a parent or someone could get their tray. But if you remove the opportunity for the people who usually deliver the tray to stop and engage with the family and really check in on the emotional status of that child, not just the blood pressure or the temperature or that kind of thing, we might actually dehumanize healthcare and that we don't want to do that. So I love that concept of harmonizing the technology with how we're delivering care. Me too. Um, will you, can you lead an organization in a challenging space in healthcare? And, you know, many are probably aware we're all engaged in healthcare as, as people and consumers, but I, I'm not sure if, if everyone listening would understand the real challenges of trying to operate in that system. man. you know, I thought maybe from your perspective, like what are some of the key challenges that you all face as you, as you operate within this U.S. system? Well, healthcare is highly regulated, and those regulations create a burden, an administrative burden that doesn't always come with a revenue stream for us. And every hospital in the country is faced with that, not just pediatric healthcare. But I do think it's amplified in pediatric healthcare because our, the floor of our cost structure is unfortunately by design higher, so more costly than in a traditional adult hospital for a number of reasons. Start first with people. We need people who are actually trained in pediatric specialties to, specialties to take care of kids. Um, our children have a different anatomy, different physiology, different medical needs. I mean, their diagnoses are literally different than in the adult space. And people need to get trained to take care of kids, not just adults. And that training takes more time. Therefore, it costs more money. A cost structure goes up. When you think about our supply chain, we source our supplies many times from the same vendors and places that an adult hospital is, but we actually need way more supplies than an adult facility. So think just in terms of blood pressure cuffs. And I actually wish we're on a podcast, but I wish I could show visual aids because it's pretty impactful. Any day, any time in a children's hospital, we have micro preemies. So babies born that weigh less than a pound. And we might actually have a 500-pound teenager suffering from mor um, morbid obesity. So we would have a blood pressure cuff that's about the size of a Band-Aid that can fit on a premature infant. And then we need a blood pressure cuff that can fit around the arm or the leg of a 500-pound person and every size in between. Well, multiply that by oxygen masks, tiny, tiny oxygen masks, full-size oxygen masks. Multiply that by diapers, like a diaper that's literally the size of a post-it note, to a full-size extra, extra large depends for an incontinent, bigger person, and everything in between. So the cost of inventory, the cost of our supply chain is very different than an adult size. From a capital standpoint, the same thing's true from hospital beds. Bassinets designed for an infant to a bariatric bed designed for a 500-pound person. And it, it just goes on and on. And that creates a layer of cost that doesn't happen in the adult world. And I can say that with ease because I've actually worked in adult hospitals. I've had the experience of being in a 700-bed academic hospital in a large urban town. Those kinds of things make it very different. The people are different. The supply chain, the things are different. And then the spaces are very different. 
And that makes our burden of delivering high quality, low cost, patient-centered care more challenging, I believe, than in just a general adult community hospital. You know, I, I had never thought about the variations, you know, physiologically, I guess, in, in your patient relative to adult. It makes sense clearly when you say it, but when you hear pediatrics or children or adult, you kind of think one or two, but wow, what a, you're, you're right, you're dealing with a, a vast variation. The last piece I would land on there that I think is such an exciting field in medicine right now and more costly than I think the average Arkansan would even understand. Medical technology, medical science, and research and discovery have been creating novel pediatric drugs, pharmaceuticals, to solve for conditions that were fatal in the past. Neuro neuromuscular conditions that children are born with that children don't live to be, but maybe two or three years old. There are now not just life-altering, but life-saving drugs that we are delivering to these children in Arkansas and all over the country, probably the world. Single doses of those, draw, uh, those drugs are seven figures. So a million dollars or more per dose. And that's not just a cost on the hospital, right? We would negotiate that with payers. We work with sources of revenue to ensure that the drug gets paid for back to the pharmaceutical company. But that's not a sustainable future for us, except that it is a sustainable future for that one child who now will live and for that family who sees hope. And so that that's a fascinating, um, probably just in the last five years, piece of our world that's becoming more and more challenging to maneuver, but everyone wants to figure out how we're going to navigate that space because we're going to actually save children's lives. And going back to the population decline, we need to save every one of those children's lives. Absolutely. Well, well I assume, you know, working in, in pediatrics that, that your team is a very mission-driven team, uh, purposeful team. You know, as, as I've gotten to know you, we've worked together over the last, let's say, five or six years. I know, you know, I, it seems to me like you've had a significant focus on innovation and driving innovation in the organization or equipping maybe your leaders and teams with innovation. You know, how did you, what was, what drove your recognition of the need for that and how did it go about It's a great question. And I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you. I, I'm often viewed in my CEO colleague space is a bit contrarian in the world of innovation um, in the past because people in healthcare love to think we are incredibly innovative. In the moment, in the delivery of care, I would state quite firmly that we are not often innovative. We're great at incremental improvement. The margin of error of pediatric healthcare is really small and not many families would say they want to be the first. And so in the care delivery system, in the hospitals, in the clinics, as we talk to families, we are incrementally better really well. We have great improvement science techniques. We are very robust in our process improvement and process design. And we need to keep that going in the moment of care. But it is also true that we have got to come, we have to be able to create space that allows teams um, to really think innovatively in a way that isn't just improving today's solution. It, it really is completely different. 
So we have invested time in trying to seek out champions for innovation to create free up space, I guess is the best way to say that, in one day to learn about how to think differently, learn how to be um, innovative, to give them the tools to really explore a very different solution rather than just exploring a better way of doing what we're already doing today. And I'm hoping that makes sense and isn't inarticulate on a podcast. So we've we've partnered with the University of Arkansas. We've partnered with the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences to think about how you take clinicians who are so good at incremental change and break them away from that and give them a space where they can actually do um, transformative change. So we do that by building, even at the core of our work, a culture that's built on discovery and curiosity. So when I interview people, I'm looking for what was the last thing you learned that was new? How did you learn something new, whether it was work-related or not? Trying to assess for a team member's interest in their curiosity level and their interest discovering something new and doing things differently. And I think well, if we do that in senior leadership or we do that with um, frontline leaders or frontline staff, we can create a culture that is naturally geared towards discovery and insightful ways of looking at things that will promote innovation in a very different space. And that totally makes sense to me, the way you explained it. Uh, really trying to give your team space uh, uh, that allows them to think outside of their lump and, and transform together. So it totally makes sense to me. And we've been pleased to be a part of that. Maybe, maybe transitioning to leadership. Uh, you know, I mean, when I, when, I, when I think about interacting with you over the years, clearly we've interacted around innovation, but um, I love your style of leadership. And as you, as you think about our students, Marcy, you know, the Sam M. Bolton College of Business is really producing the next leaders of the organizations throughout the state and region. You know, what, what advice would you start to give them? Maybe let's start with leadership. Uh, and like, how do you develop and how did you develop your own framework of leadership? I think I was drawn to leadership really, really early in my life, which may not be a typical path. But I mean, if you were to rewind the clock all the way to high school, I always lifted my hand to, you know, be nominated for an officer in a high school club. Were you in the first row? Uh, of the classroom? Many times, <laughs> sadly. My mom would tell you that, you know, as a five-year-old, I was the one going, I want to say why. I want to determine the why. And I think that was what drove me. Is I really had this innate curiosity to always want to understand why and then realize, you know what, I can define that why maybe better than others. So that, that drove me into leadership. One other thing that kept me in leadership really has been this passion I have for developing others and helping people see you can be a leader from any seat you sit in. And I think that's an important lesson for students. Not everyone wants to be a CEO. Not everyone can be a CEO. I mean, it, it's a pretty steep pinnacle, right? There's only one at the top. And so you don't have to reach even the C-suite to be an extraordinary leader. And leading is by creating that vision for a group of people who will follow you to do something better and improve on whatever whatever it is, whatever business you're in. My own experience in leadership in terms of success is um, leading first with authenticity and integrity. 
I think that was pretty natural for me, but it was rein, um, reinforced by mentors I've had through my career. And I think, sadly, women sometimes get steered a little differently, that they, they a persona around them that they think the world is expecting, and they leave a bit of their personal life or their personal approach to the side. And I, I would never encourage anyone to do that. Well, then a lesson I learned really early in my career was kind of battling a bit of that, being a little worried about being the only female voice on an executive team, which I had the experience of, and thinking I needed to frame my thoughts and my interjections the same way all of my male counterparts were. And yet that isn't the tone of my normal voice in terms of the cadence of the words or the way I think or the way I might problem solve. And when I got comfortable with self, it wasn't an outside world telling me to do that. It was internal and just decided to be myself. But it was almost as if the team around me was like, well, thank goodness Marcy's now here. Because they knew me in that way individually. And then I'd get to the big table and be a bit cowed by that. And I think finding your own voice and leading with that level of authenticity, the teams around you will welcome that. Yeah, it won't be perfect, but nothing is. I would also suggest you be a student of your work. I have had that conversation with team members. People often comment, how do you remember that stuff? How do you know those numbers so well? I've been a student my whole life. I'm 55 years old and 10 years into this CEO job, and I still study our work every day. I mean, I spent time yesterday really looking deeply at some statistics around food insecurity just so I could understand it differently because of a conversation that's coming up. And there's a lot of noise in our world telling us to know certain things or to be certain ways or to be pulled in different directions. And if students or young leaders, new grads in their first roles can learn how to put a lot of the noise aside and be a student of what it is you wish to do, what you are doing today and what it is you wish to do in the future, you will know your work better than anyone else. And with that will come growth in your career. Well, Marcy, I, I love the viewpoint on authenticity. Each one of us are individuals. We're unique. We bring something unique. And that's actually what can make uh, an organization and a team really special is when everyone brings those experiences and their unique self to bear. And uh, and then that mixes together and creates a pretty unique industry. I was, it was reinforced for me just recently. I was out rounding. I do this a lot. It's get out of my office and go spend time on one of the patient care units. And I was on one of our medical units um, a few days ago, and there was a new member on the team, and I stopped, and I, she looked a little frightened that I walked up to her. I had a business suit on and, you know, didn't wasn't wearing scrubs. And I said, hi, Marcy. I said, I can tell by the color of your scrubs you're one of our um, student interns this summer because our team members are color-coded in scrubs, which really helps me know what they do. And she kind of had a little frightened look on her face. And one of her teammates, and I think was her preceptor, Kelly, walks up and puts her arm around her. She's like, don't worry. That's just Marcy. She's one of us. You'll get to know her as you work here. I was like, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate that. Um, And then... I visibly saw the shoulders relax on the student intern, and she told me her name, and I welcomed her to Arkansas Children's. But Kelly, the team member, was comfortable doing that for a CEO because she knows me. 
And that comes with leading with authenticity. Absolutely. Well, Marcy, I want to say thank you to you and to Arkansas Children's for the way that you serve our state and and particularly the future of our state. Thank you so much. Um, I have the best job in the state of Arkansas, and Arkansas Children's has such a bright future as one of the preeminent healthcare systems in our state. And I think the children of Arkansas will be better for the work we will do as Arkansas Children's, but more importantly, the work Arkansas Children's will do in partnership with people like you and the University of Arkansas, partnership with business and other community advocates who are out there wanting to make sure every child can reach their fullest potential. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. Well, I know one thing we share, and that is uh, uh, a passion for the future of this state. So thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. On behalf of the Walton College, thank you for joining us for this captivating conversation. To stay connected and never miss an episode, simply search for Be Epic on your preferred podcast service.